circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Hey, miu yum, miu yum, cho onum, and uh, mokium to full circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. This week on Full Circle, we will be covering three topics. Of course, we continue to keep our eyes and ears on Palestine. On tonight's show, we'll hear from an East Contra Costa imam, Imam Abu Bakar, and a young organizer from Contra Costa for Palestine. They are hosting a teach-in and are pressing Antioch City Council to bring a ceasefire resolution for a vote. And to kick off Black History Month on Full Circle, We'll hear from a past guest on the show, Oakland filmmaker Brian Gibble. He is wrapping up the first stages of his film, Sign My Name to Freedom, The Lost Music of Betty Reed Soskin. And to close out the show, we'll continue with Black History Month and hear why it's important to link the fight for black liberation to the fight for a free Palestine with a speech by the People's Mayor of Oakland, Cat Brooks. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Natung Frank Sterling Jr. Yaka, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This is occupied Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Yes, again, Miu Yum, Miu Yum. Notion Lobic. My heart is full. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. I want to take this first part of the show tonight and look at some upcoming events in East Contra Costa County, focusing on Gaza and Palestine. Organizers with Contra Costa for Palestine and the local Muslim Community Center, along with community members in Antioch, Oakley, and Brentwood, are holding a teach-in on Palestine and Gaza. This comes as the groups organize the community to press the Antioch City Council to bring a ceasefire resolution to the City Council for a vote. There is also an ongoing email campaign to urge the city and the mayor, who has control of the agenda, to put that resolution on the agenda. So to kick off this segment, we'll hear excerpts from a conversation that was held last night on a local podcast the Carlos Tacos Show. On the show last night, I spoke with Imam Abu Bakar about some of the history of the current situation in Gaza and Palestine. After that, we'll be joined by one of the young organizers of Contra Costa for Palestine, Sumeya. She will bring us up to date on the upcoming event Sunday, February 4th, and what we can expect if we make it out to the event. This clip starts with Imam Abu Bakr describing the current situation on the ground in Gaza. Check it out on Full Circle. 
first of all, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I appreciate you guys. Uh, it's a humanitarian disaster. It is a um, total nightmare in terms of, you know, what's happening. Uh, the vast majority of the population of the Gaza Strip have been displaced from their homes. 27,000 have been killed, but then if most people aren't even living in their homes, there's not enough food coming in for people to survive, which is nothing new to them because for those who are familiar with the situation, um, Gaza Strip is an open air prison. So therefore any water that comes in, drinkable water is controlled, uh, food supply is controlled. Um, none of that is new, but now without their homes who have had community members here who have lost uh, their entire families over there. We've had community members who have lost, um, you know, multiple uh, people in their family. Like one brother was telling me 30 people in his family, they were just, you know, having dinner at home and then they get bombed. Uh, another individual uh, who is an activist in the Bay Area, he was telling us that his family, um, there is no one or but maybe one person remaining with his last name in the Gaza Strip right now. Uh, so it's, these are real human beings. Uh, they're just like you and I, um, and they are in such a state where, you know, I heard recently they're eating uh, leaves off of the trees to survive. Wow. Um, and in their heart, they're still, you know, they don't want to leave. They don't want to be kicked out of their homeland. They, they want to resist. They want to be given their rights. They want to be given some form of justice. I think to understand the situation, you have to, you said it all started in October 7th. Um, for them, a lot of it is same old, same old. Uh, a lot of those people who are being killed right now, imagine they were born in an open air prison. Um, and the history of how it became an open air prison, who exactly is living there, I'd be happy to to share if, if you want yes. me to go that way. Well, Imam, let me ask you this, because like Patty said, for a lot of people, this suddenly um, started October 7th. Um, but give us a brief history of what life has been like in Palestine before October 7th. I know 2023 up to that point was already the deadliest year for children in Palestine. It was already the deadliest year there. Um, it's been about 75 years. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on like the Nakba, but I don't think people know about that. So can you tell people about the Nakba and then how we got to October 7th? Very good. Because that history is very important. It puts everything into perspective. Why are people resisting so much? Why have their enemies decided that the only thing we can do these people is exterminate them and eliminate them? That they have to break their will to resist. Where did this come from? This doesn't just pop up all of a sudden. They decided, you know, everybody's living peacefully. They decided to attack Israel. And then all of a sudden now they're getting bombed in revenge. That's a narrative that uh, Israelis are trying to push but the reality is far different than that. Uh, mm -hmm. To understand the context, um, you, you can go back even like, uh, even before 1948, there was a lot of Jews that uh, were living in Israel. Muslims, Jews, and Christians were living in uh, peace. They were neighbors. Uh, World War II happened. Uh, what did the Muslims in Palestine do? They started welcoming in you know, people to live in their land. All of a sudden, something happening in you know 1948 that would change that relationship entirely. 
it's easy to think about this as ancient history, but a lot of these people are alive today, who are alive during that time. It's easy to think about this as, you know, something, you know, far away and distant and separate from us. So to help empathize, it's good to say, okay, well, what if, you know, here in you know, the Bay Area, here in, you know, uh, wherever you're at, Pittsburgh, Antioch, Concord, or wherever you're watching this from, um, you know, we were we decided to welcome in people who are from, you know, war-torn countries. Uh, and those people came in and they started settling in and, and, and living as their neighbors um, to the level that one of those people, you know, uh, her name is Golda Meir. She became the fourth prime minister of Israel. She was a passport carrying Palestinian citizen. So she was granted her rights and given her rights and welcomed in as a Palestinian. Then you have 1948. There's a lot more history than that, but this is not going to be a history lesson. This is just some perspective. 1948, what was the Nakba? What happened? Uh, you have a systematic mission to prepare for the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, and we'll talk about what that is. Um, what systematic mission took place? They, they needed the land to be vacated so that they could move in there and, and live there. And as uh, Brother Frank was there on the day that um, Rabbi Lynn was talking to us about, um, you know, she was growing up at that time as a young Jewish girl. And she was like, she was asking everybody, like, what happened to the people who were living in that land? And everybody was like, oh, they just left. They just left. They just left. Well, how did they leave? How do you get 500 villages with 700,000 people in them to vacate? What they did was they first attacked this village called Der Yassin, and they slaughtered the men and the boys. They stripped the, can I be, you know? Yeah, no, history maps. The women and the girls, naked, photographed them, uh, unclothed, and then slaughtered them. Then they took those pictures and they threatened uh, different villages and they told them, look, we have all these weapons. We we're gonna do this to you just like we did it to those people. If you don't want this to happen to you, the people who are just welcoming them, the people who are living as their neighbors in peace, they're like, nope, this land is ours now, get off of it. So some of the Palestinians that ended up, you know, when I say Palestinians, I mean non-Jewish Palestinians. Um, Christian Palestinians, Muslim Palestinians. They ended up settling, uh, some of them, some of them ended up having to leave to Jordan. Some of them settled in the West Bank and so on. And the majority, 700,000 of them went to live in what is known as the Gaza Strip. Mm. So what did they do with those 500 villages? They cornered them to the point where they're almost kicking them out of the country. They're putting them all the way in the corner of the country and they kept them there. They um, bulldozed um, their villages. They, uh, some of them they took over. Some of them they just erased and planted trees where the village was so that literally they would have nothing to return to. And the Palestinian families that left, they took their keys with them that they hoped that one day we're gonna return to our homes, that this was a great injustice that was dealt to us so then they continued to resist in from Gaza. Well, you know, the only way you're going to have people stop resisting 
if you did such a major injustice to them, if you don't wipe them out, they ended up building the iron wall, seven feet thick and a layer of barbed wire. Like you think about it, like I have a lot of friends who went to, for example, they, they, they spent time in San Quentin, for example, you know, where's the barbed wire and automatic machine guns? You know, it's like, it's worse than a prison. Right, automatic, just machine guns on cameras, sensors, just will shoot anything that's in sight. Um, it's just a nightmare situation. So there's kids who grew up in Gaza, and you can see the interviews yourself. Look up interviews with people in Gaza. They've never seen a mountain in their life. They've never went outside of this prison that they were born in. The people who were who established that area, a lot of them are alive today. The people who were born there. A lot of those people are the people getting bombed today. They were sequestered into a corner of their own country simply because they did not fit the, you know, the religious or genetic necessity to stay in their home. And on the other hand, you know, and, and I, I think any proud American should be like, what are my values as an American, right? You know, I value liberty and I value justice and I value equality. And we've messed up big time and we still continue to mess up with those in our society. However, we try to hold ourselves to that standard, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so, so we encourage each other and we have the free speech to do that. So I encourage you to think about a situation where, you know, somebody with a particular DNA and they're born and raised in, you know, South Africa or they're born and raised in, you know, Wisconsin, they're allowed to go to Israel to go to those on top of those very same villages and get a free home and get a free income uh, and, and, and be given rights and weapons. And somebody who literally their family legally owns that land and has the keys to their home, they have no right to leave that open air prison and go back. That's the situation that's going on. So those people, uh, uh, you know, weren't, you know, all of a sudden they said, let's be terrorists and let's attack our neighbors. They're saying we will never stop resisting. We will never stop seeking justice and trying to get our homes back by any means necessary. That's what's going on. All right. This is people in Franklin coming back at you. And you just heard the sound, uh, the voice of Imam Abu Bakar. He is from the Brentwood Muslim Community Center, and he was bringing us up to date on the current situation and um, that was part of a conversation that was on the Carlos Taco show on Facebook. And you could search that out and watch the entire conversation we had, as well as I will post a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Um, what we went on to talk about and what my next guest is going to talk about with us is an upcoming event in Brentwood. And it's going to be a teaching on what's happening in Palestine in Gaza to bring us up to a point where we're going to be asking for a ceasefire resolution from the Antioch City Council. We already are asking. Um, so let me welcome my next guest. This is uh, Sumeya. She's from the Contra Costa for Palestine Coalition. How are you doing, Sumeya? Hello. Thank you for having me, Franklin. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, coming back. Well, before we get on to the event we're going to have on Sunday, February 4th in Brentwood, it's a tough question at these days, but how you're feeling about the current situation? I'm actually Iraqi American. Well, I was born here in America, but I grew up 
hearing about the Iraq war and um, seeing it on the news daily. Um, so it's just reminding me a lot of that. And uh, on a actually a much larger scale, we've seen uh, the statistics, the amount of children killed in the 10-year conflict in Iraq versus this four-month conflict in Palestine. It's it's a huge, huge uh, gap in in number it's it's much higher in palestine and it's it's heartbreaking to see because it's such a small territory that's being attacked at only 25 miles that's uh, it's it's devastating so um to say the least all right well thank you for that and thanks for clarifying that you are iraqi american and which we know as you mentioned suffered a devastating war at the hands of the u.s well what we didn't get to in the conversation from the Carlos Taco show that I didn't play on the air is an important event that's coming up in Brentwood at Adams Middle School. And you're a part of the organizing uh, for that event. And it's going to be a teach in on what's happening in Palestine, in Gaza. It's going to be an interfaith gathering. Um, talk about what's going to happen on Sunday, February 4th at Adams Middle School. I believe it's at 330. Um, and Tell us what we can expect to see and hear if we come there. Yes, of course. So we will be meeting at the multi-purpose slash theater room, um, same place as the last event. Uh, it will begin with a quick six-minute documentary uh, by Al Jazeera detailing the uh, Nabka, Nakba event. Excuse me. Uh, this was the original catastrophe that happened in, I believe, uh, the 1940s. And this is when Israel... Uh, became essentially Israel. And um, from there on, we will have Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, Reverend Michael Yoshi, and Imam Abu Bakr to speak on that and give their reflections on that and uh, a short Q&A at the end. And like you just mentioned, this is uh, the second one. We had one there in the past. It's how I got to meet you. Tell me about your feelings about the um, the last event. You know, I was moved by the event. And like I just said, I was glad to meet you all so I could begin organizing with you all out here. A lot of us, I feel like that are in the Far East Bay, the Far East Contra Costa County. Um, there's not a lot to contribute to sometimes out here as far as um, anti-war protests and stuff like that. Most of us have to go to Oakland and the greater Bear Area. So I'm glad to be organizing with you out here. But again, reflect on your feelings from the last event. It's as you said, we're, 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 we don't get a lot out here. And so the last event was our first sort of anti-war effort that I've seen. I'm very new to the East Bay, very uh, new to the you know, Contra Costa East Bay area, but I, it went really well. It was our first event. Uh, again, another teach-in. We had these same speakers. Um, ra the rabbi gave us a lot of insight. She's honestly a dictionary of information. I love what she had to say. Uh, Michael Yoshi, the same. Uh, getting their three perspectives is it's amazing to hear, and um, we hope to see people come out for this event. And I think the last event really kicked off what happens or what's going to happen in Antioch, uh, mainly because of, I would say, you and so many others that kind of joined in and agreed we need to do something in Antioch as Brentwood's sort of just not done anything there for us. Well, let's talk about what we're doing, because right now there's an ongoing email campaign to urge the city council to uh, bring a ceasefire resolution to the council for a vote. 
And at the last city council meeting, uh, Tamisha Torres Walker, District 1, my district, yay, um, said that she would like to see that come back, which kicks into action the uh, the protocol of the um, city council here in Antioch. The mayor has 90 days to bring that back. So um, we are going to be asking um, the city council to put that on the agenda ASAP, and we're hoping that they'll do it um, for the next city council meeting, which is the 13th. And um, so tell us about that. Tell us about the email campaign and how we can access that. And then about the um, city council resolution. Yes, yes. I'm honestly so excited. I I didn't realize we had such a an amazing, brave uh, council member here in my own city. I, I don't even live in Brentwood. I'm an Antioch resident, District 4. Uh, but uh, Tamisha Torres Walker, she's, I, I want to begin by thanking her for actually starting this and putting this forward. And what we do need right now is the mayor to actually allow this to be put on the actual agenda. That's from my understanding is what's needed in Antioch. And, um, so the, the goal is right now to continue emailing him and have him, we also invited him to the event as well, but to continue emailing him and have him understand that like this is a important thing for us constitu constituents in Antioch and um, hopefully once it's on the agenda, they will vote and uh, hopefully get that passed and will be one of many other cities leading the cause in this effort. And let me get your thoughts real quick on um, politicians and elected um, officials being concerned about the consequences, even though they may feel inside or state publicly that they know what's happening is wrong. Talk about the importance of doing the right thing, as they say, um, regardless of the consequences. Truly, I, I do understand their concern as the uh, Zionist agenda is quite strong and it's got such a huge wealth backing it. And I want to emphasize wealth because they've got endless of it. And this is just to, I mean APEC is so strong and I, I understand that but I do want to say doing the right thing is is what is needed right now uh, we I'm sure we've all been there in our I don't know what grade what is it high school grade uh, learning about the holocaust spending you know a good month just reading those books and watching those documentaries and wondering how could people let this go on for so long and say nothing I think that's what we're seeing right now. Um, I'm not sure if it's on the same level, but just according to the statistics, it's basically on the same level as that. And it's only been four months. We have, If it goes any longer, if it continues the way it did in that time of the Holocaust, it, it might be even larger than the Holocaust um, if we keep this up, if we keep ignoring it and letting it fester the way it has we we need to do the right thing it's it's the humane thing to do the the right thing to do agreed and i hope the city council hears this again that's the voice of my guest uh sumeya and she is one of the organizers of contra costa for palestine coalition real quick before we run out of time uh sumeya where can people find information about what's going on with uh the event in Brentwood and the, the email campaign and all that. 
so we have an Instagram, Contra Costa for Palestine, four as in the number four. Uh, we also have a link tree. If you can just, honestly, if you Google us at Contra Costa for Palestine, you'll probably see our Instagram. You don't even need Instagram. Google is right there. Uh, you'll see our Instagram once you click on it via Google and the link tree is right in the bio. The link tree will have our the one-click email that will automatically just have you click and email all of the council members for that campaign. It will also have the Antioch resolution where you can sign your name if you're an Antioch resident. Uh, even if you're not an Antioch resident, we encourage people to put community member. It's That's fine as well. Uh, we do have a lot of Antioch residents signing. So uh, yeah, Instagram so far is the best way to keep in touch with us. We also have a Signal group chat you'll see on the link tree. So if you'd like to get involved, uh, go ahead and join the Signal. We encourage more ideas and more people joining in. That's that's what we're here for, for the people. All right, Sumeya, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining me uh, tonight on Full Circle. Thank you so much for having me, Franklin. <laughs> Right, welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network, and we also post our work on First Voice Media on Facebook. You just heard Hey Hey Palestine, and before that you heard about an upcoming teach-in that will be happening in Brentwood on Sunday as well as an ongoing email campaign to urge the city of Antioch to pass a ceasefire resolution. If you missed any of the dates or important links or information, we'll post all of that on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. Next, in honor of Black History Month, I'm going to throw it to an interview I did yesterday with Oakland filmmaker Brian Gibble. He's working on completing his film, Sign My Name to Freedom, The Lost Music of Betty Reed Soskin. But to kick off this segment, let's start with the trailer from the film. Many of you know me as a park ranger, but there's a part of my life 
that I've kept hidden for half a century. Little boy black, little boy black. I packed Secret Betty up in boxes in reel-to-reel tapes. No one in my life knew that I had been a singer or that I had written music. I talk about you know, suffering a mental break, but I don't give anybody the reasons why. But the music saved me. It really did. We were the first family of color in Walnut Creek. Why must my mind... And I think that had I known the price my kids would have to pay before we moved in, I don't really know if I'd have put them through that. I was documenting all of those events that we were experiencing as a country and that I was experiencing in isolation. But they ring as true for me now as they did when I wrote them. Maybe this releasing of the music to the public is a way of making myself whole. And maybe I need to do that before I die. All right, Free Will and Franklin back at you here on Full Circle, and we're going to revisit a a story we covered uh, a while back, and we brought back uh, Oakland filmmaker Brian Gibble, and he's going to be again speaking with us about Betty Reed Soskin and Many of you know her as the the oldest living park ranger uh, hailing out of Richmond, California, and the Rosie the Riveter National Park there. But as we found out during that show, there's a lot more to Betty Reed's life. And again, uh, Brian Gibble, filmmaker out of Oakland, California, is joining us to talk about um, what's transpired since the last time we spoke here on Full Circle, where he's going, and an upcoming event he has planned um around his film. Welcome back to Full Circle, Brian. Thank you, Franklin. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. And we talked about this on our previous show that most people actually know Betty as the um, the oldest park ranger from the Rosie the Riveter um, National Park. There was that terrible moment when she got robbed and actually beaten, which really brought her again into the the press. But as we discovered in our last show, there's a lot more to her life out there. So um, talk about, we'll combine the two questions here, Betty's living link to history, you know, kicking off black history for our show, Full Circle. But talk about um, the little known parts of her life that we talked about on the last show. Absolutely, yeah. Betty is more than anybody I've ever met, um, a living connection to history that for a lot of us feels like it's just something in books and the distant past, even myths. The main way that I think of that, and there's a lot of them for Betty, but she was raised until her 20s by her slave ancestor. Her great-grandmother was born as a slave uh, in St. James Parish of New Orleans, uh, or of Louisiana, rather, just outside of New Orleans. And uh, her great-grandmother lived to be 102, died in 1948. And Betty was born in 1921. And so... um, her parents raised her as well, but her great-grandmother, Leontine, was the matriarch of the family. And so she was literally raised and influenced tremendously by somebody that has a lived experience of slavery, which is, to me, it gives me goosebumps, frankly, just saying it. It's remarkable. 
she carries that torch on still because she was an adult when uh, her slave ancestor died and they were very, very close. And so Betty has a lot of memories uh, directly from her great grandmother, Leontine. And also Betty lived through and experienced um, the first great black migration from the South to the West Coast. Um, in 1926, I believe there was a flood, a horrible hurricane reminiscent in some ways of Katrina in uh, Louisiana and in New Orleans. And it destroyed the black parts of the city, not only, but they were hit the hardest. And the Mississippi River flooded and caused damage all throughout the entire region. And um, it, it launched a, a huge migration of black folks out of the South. And that's how Betty came to California. So that also is, for many people, distant history, but it's something that Betty experienced and lived through directly. So she's an embodiment of times that uh, for a lot of us seem like they're long gone but they're not because Betty's still alive. She's 102 years old right now. She's doing pretty well, but she um, is you know, over 100. And so she is, I guess, weaker than she has been in the past. She retired from the park service at 100 years old and she's still doing well. But um, I think it's really important to celebrate and recognize some of the little known parts of her life. And that experience migrating after the great flood in 1926 is, um, a really important part of American history. And then Betty lived through as well, the next great black migration out of the South, which was around World War II during the home front, the effort to build ships and tanks and other armaments to defeat Nazi Germany. Uh, Betty was, she signed up to work as a Rosie the Riveter in Richmond at the shipyards, the Kaiser shipyards. And at that time, there were literally hundreds of thousands of um, not just African-American, but a lot of African-American folks that came out from the South. They were recruited to work in the shipyards. And Richmond, for instance, the population was like 20 or 30,000 in the late 30s. And by the end of World War II, it was a city of over 150,000. And almost all those folks came as a part of the second great Black migration out of the South not just to the West Coast, but a lot of them came out here. And at that time, Betty was in her 20s. And she witnessed all of this and, and actually helped welcome some of the folks that were coming in on trains at the time. She signed up to be a Rosie the Riveter, but she couldn't because the union uh, that controlled the workforce at the time was racially segregated. And so Betty was forced to work in what's called an auxiliary union. It's really like a subjugated union that was only allowed to assist the principal dock workers at the time. And all she could do was punch time cards for other workers rather than being able to actually go down to the shipyards and work helping to build ships to fight fascist Germany. Uh, so that's a history that's really important to know because workplace segregation was pervasive in California. And it's something that really impacted economic growth for people of color. And it's not widely spoken about. Uh, later in her life, so that was the 40s uh, during World War II. In the early 1950s, Betty and her family decided that they wanted to move out of the neighborhood they lived in, in South Berkeley. And at the time, South Berkeley was a black neighborhood. Almost all the residents were African-Americans, which is not what it looks like now. Uh, but that's what it was like when Betty was there during the 1940s. In the early 1950s, they decided to move outside of that area. And one thing I learned in the process of research for my film, which surprised me, actually, I found an old newsreel. And there's a reporter 
standing on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. And he says that Shattuck Avenue was the dividing line and African-American folks could not buy property above Shattuck Avenue. And this clip was actually in the early 1960s. So a lot of people think of Berkeley in particular as being a leader in terms of progressive political and social activity, but that wasn't so much the case, uh, even if we go back to the 1960s, especially around racial segregation. Um, Betty and her family decided that they wanted to move out of Berkeley since they couldn't move above Shattuck Avenue. They figured that they would move to Walnut Creek. And at the time, Walnut Creek was fully racially segregated as well even more so than Berkeley. Berkeley had a black neighborhood, Walnut Creek, black folks couldn't move into it all. And that was in part because of a process called redlining where real estate agencies and associations of realtors would have meetings and they'd come together and they would decide that they would not sell property to black folks in white parts of town or white towns. So Walnut Creek uh, still isn't particularly racially diverse, but back in the fifties before Betty moved there, it was more reminiscent of the Jim Crow South than what we think of in California. Uh, Betty's husband had a friend who was married to a white woman. So they gave her money and she used that money to purchase property. She could do that because she was white. And then she turned the property over to Betty and Betty's family. And when they moved out there, it was just an empty lot and they started uh, building their dream house. And when the neighbors got wind of it, they got notes from people saying that they would burn down the house if they continued to build it out there. And there were threats of violence. And Betty's kids in particular, uh, their oldest son was attacked and beat up by white kids at school and when he would come home. And so they faced racial bigotry and racial violence uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s in Walnut Creek. Sorry, that's some pretty local history there. And um, as far as I remember from our past conversation, somewhere in between that time, Betty made some beautiful music and I think we should transition on to what part of your film is about and um, you know where we're going with the film so the racism in Walnut Creek and the whole past of Betty and that big connection she has as living history and especially here in the Bay Area um, talk about this other hidden part of Betty this music and then you know talk more about your film sure thank you so Uh, As a result of the trauma that Betty and her family was experiencing in Walnut Creek, she had a mental breakdown and she became suicidal and it was a really dark time for her. And she was meeting with a psychiatrist at the time and she would tell him that she was remembering songs, but she didn't know where she was remembering them from. And they figured out that she was actually writing these songs and they were just coming straight out of her subconscious. And they were all autobiographical compositions about what she was living through at the time. And she wrote and then eventually began performing a catalog of probably 15 to 20 songs that are all originals. She taught herself how to play music. She played guitar and, and sung her lyrics and her, she was spectacular. Her voice reminds me a little bit of Billie Holiday and that it has that intensity, but like that thin shrill tone and her songwriting style is all her own. But I tell people that it has the, re- the relevance of somebody like Nina Simone. And so she performed for probably about a decade uh, in Walnut Creek and around the Bay Area as she began to become active in uh, political movements. And um, she was being groomed to become a professional musician by agents that saw her 
And she decided that she couldn't do that. She said she was afraid of succeeding, not of failing, because she had a special needs daughter and children that were dealing with trauma as a result of crossing the color line into a white city that was racially segregated. And so she ended up putting her music away on old reel-to-reel -reel tapes that she kept in a bin, a plastic bin in the back of her closet for like 50 or 60 years. And she ended up getting rid of the reel-to-reel -reel player over time, but she always kept the tapes. And they never saw the light of day until eventually she mentioned her music to me when I was starting to work on a film about her life. Um, didn't know anything about her music. And as soon as she played like one dubbed tape that she had from her recordings, I was completely taken aback and decided I wanted to make a feature length documentary about that hidden side of her life. And so that's uh, in part what the film looks at. The film looks, it's called Sign My Name to Freedom, uh, The Lost Music of Betty Reed Soskin. And it looks at those hidden parts of Betty's life. And then when she heard her songs again, uh, through the recording of the documentary, she decided that she wanted to breathe life into them uh, now. And so in her 90s, she started partnering with younger musicians from around the Bay Area to reinterpret some of her songs. She was insistent that she would never sing again because she could never compete with her younger self. But eventually she did sing again, backed up by the Oakland Symphony Orchestra and a 200 person choir in Oakland's historic Paramount Theater and had a huge standing ovation. There were thousands of people that were there for the event that day. And all that, that whole process is covered and, and captured through my documentary. I filmed with Betty for about eight years, as I mentioned earlier. And now the vast majority of the documentary has been shot. And um, we are working on post-production to get the film cut and released. And we have an amazing Emmy award-winning editor named Kevin Jones, who signed on to do the editing for the film, whose offices are just a few blocks from where Betty worked in Richmond at the Rosie Park. He's a perfect person to edit the film. And um, we currently have a crowdfunding campaign to raise funds to be able to get us to the finish line because Betty's 102 now, right? She's not getting any younger. And it's not hyperbole at all. She's told me many times that her dream is to see this film completed while she's still around. And given her age, uh, I feel like the clock is really ticking. And I really, really want that to happen. Betty really wants that to happen. So if people want to find more about the crowdfunding campaign or the film itself, they can visit our website, which is signmynametofreedom.com. And there's plenty of more information as well as a 90 second trailer for the film that they can watch on there. And we're also hosting uh, free events in the area and online through Zoom for a 20 minute extended work sample we have for the film that really goes much more in depth. All the events are free. And if you go to signmynametofreedom.com slash events, uh, folks can find a list of the different screenings that we have going on there. One that's coming up, for instance, is on February 18th in the morning at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And that's a free where, where we'll be showing the 20 minute work sample and there'll be members of the film team there to discuss the project. Wow. All right. So right there on the website, you can learn more about how to support Brian uh, Gibble and his film. Sign my name to freedom. This Oakland filmmaker right here stumbled onto something uh, beautiful. And um, also I will post a link on our website to Brian's work, kpfaapprentice.org. And I'll even post a link to our last show where we talk, check that out. Brian, um, well, thanks for joining us again today. Those of you in the background didn't know we had some technical difficulties, but thanks for uh, riding out through that with me. And 
Um, good luck at your upcoming events and definitely keep us posted here at KPFA because we want to um, get you back with the full film. We could play some clips and, uh, you know, get more people more involved in the film. Thank you so much for having me, Franklin. We're hoping to have the film completed and released uh, early next year in 2025. So I really appreciate you having me on and hopefully I'll be back then soon to tell people about the completed documentary. All right. Thank you, Brian. Hear my wind song Hear the gulls cry Watch the storm race through Restless reeds rhyme Waves weave madness Blackness deep Here I stand in winter's wildness Sea and sand are mine Take them you just heard wind song a beautiful song it was by betty reed soskin i found that on youtube and i'm sure that's part of the lost music of betty reed soskin before that you heard my interview with oakland filmmaker brian gibble he's working on a feature length documentary film about the lost music of betty reed soskin and how they discovered it again i'll post all the links and information to brian's work and his film, Sign My Name to Freedom, on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. And coming up next, I'm going to close out the show, staying on the Black History Month theme, but combining it with the Palestine theme that we opened the show with tonight. I'm going to play a speech by the People's Mayor of Oakland and KPFA radio host of Law and Disorder, Cat Brooks. The speech was recorded at the Indigenous People's Solidarity Rally for Palestine in Oakland last November. 
and it highlights the need to connect our fights internationally for black liberation, for indigenous people's liberation, and for the liberation of Palestine. us 
in 2009 when we too had tanks, tear gas, and snipers as we fought for justice for Oscar Grant. At the same time we were fighting for justice for Oscar Grant, Arab Spring erupted. And across the region, George, you remember this, across the region, they held up signs that said, I am Oscar Grant. Well, today I say, we are all Palestine. I'm gonna keep connected some dots, because more immediately, April Tifi, whose mission it is to eradicate state terror in our communities, sees a direct link in our work and struggles at, as it is the IDF that trains U.S. police on how to hunt, cage, kill, and subdue us in exchange for the billions of dollars in aid the United Snakes of America gives them every single year to fund their ongoing assault of Palestinians and occupation of Palestinian land. Connected another dot. These cop cities that we are fighting across the country, yeah. and, and I love that they really trying that here in the Bay. <laughs> These cop cities that we are fighting across the country are intended to be uh, a home for exactly that kind of training. And it is no coincidence that these centers are pushing to be built as we are barreling towards the 2024 presidential elections when we are almost sure that a fascist will be in that seat. Not that it matters right now who is in that seat, and certainly not for the Palestinians, and not for us. Because Biden has long been a supporter of Israel. Biden has long been a supporter of US law enforcement. Biden never cared about black people, Palestinian people, indigenous people, poor people. And the ways in which we feel the weight of white supremacist boots on our neck. He helped put that boot there with the 1994 crime bill and the three strikes law. And he is putting that boot on the necks of Palestinians right now as he aids, abets, and supports a slow-moving but almost certain genocide. All right, again, thank you, Cat Brooks, for that beautiful and rousing speech. Just a reminder, that speech came from a video and was just a small clip. To see the entire video, just head over to First Voice Media on Facebook. You'll have to scroll down to November 23rd and look for the Indigenous Solidarity Rally for Palestine. And that speech itself came from part one of the three-part video series. And again, we'll post a link to that video on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. And before I run out of time, I want to make a couple quick announcements for our folks out there fighting for a permanent ceasefire in Palestine in Far East Contra Costa County. They will be the teach-in at Adams Middle School in Brentwood. That will be in preparation for a ceasefire resolution demand to be made to the Antioch City Council. For more information on the teach-in that will be held Sunday, February 4th at Adams Middle School in Brentwood at 3.30 p.m., Check out Contra Costa for Palestine on Instagram. And that's Contra Costa, the number four, Palestine. All one word, Contra Costa for Palestine. Also, Common Ground, a fantastic film about our earth, our food, and our lives, um, explores how many of the problems that affect humans connect to the state of the world's soil. 
independent farmers in implementing historic indigenous techniques demonstrate how changing agricultural practices could potentially save the world. This film will be showing in Sacramento February 7th at the Crest Theater, and then it'll be coming to San Francisco March 7th at the Presidio Theater. Go to commongroundfilm.org for more information and tickets to those events. Also for our brothers and sisters celebrating Black History Month, Grace Arms of Antioch is offering a free event, Are You Ready for End of Life? At this event, you can learn about hospice care, wills, power of attorney, and healthcare directives. There'll also be free blood pressure checks and a free lunch. For more information, visit gracearmsofantioch.org. And the Brentwood Muslim Community Center invites you to Family Night Malcolm X, Preserving the Legacy, Rehabilitating and Transforming the Mind with Islam. And that's Saturday, February 3rd at 7.30 p.m. And that's at the Brentwood Muslim Community Center. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight for pictures, archive shows, and all the important links and information related to tonight's show. And please, another reminder, follow First Voice Media on Facebook where we post videos and other material that doesn't always make it to the radio. Shout out to the Full Circle crew, Miss M, the Executive Director, and me, Freewell and Franklin. I have been your host tonight, and I'm also the Technical Director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, while you're out there, to please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.